I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and as always, with me is my half-human, half-whatever co-host, Jeff Goad. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> listeners. Okay. And this week, we're very excited to have out with us special guest, Paolo Greco, the publisher and owner of Lost Pages and uh, game designer extraordinaire, responsible for such works as Mage Blade, Marvels and Malisons, uh, publisher of Into the Odd, Wonders and Wickedness, and I'm sure plenty of others that I'm missing. Uh, hello, Paolo. Hey. Hey, Paolo. It's awesome having you on the show. Oh, cheers. Yeah, it's pretty good. Thank you for having we're, me over, guys. We're huge fans of your work. Oh, that's, absolutely. That's always good to hear. So, Paolo, uh, you know, as always, we start with the sort of the nerdy questions. So, um, how did you get into gaming? Oh, well, uh, I think that, like, the first proper, my first introduction was in, um, in the Italian version of Mickey Mouse. Uh, there was a choose your own adventure in comics there, and mm. that really hooked me up. Uh, so then I went to the public library and I found that they had like an entire bookshelf dedicated to choose your own adventures, and there they also had uh, a German a German role playing game called um, The Dark Eye, translated mm-hmm. to Italian, and yeah. And Tunnel and Trolls, and and then I bought my first RPG, which was uh, Catacombas, which is this really difficult to explain mm. game about <laughs> uh, fake fantasy Italy. All the names are anagrams of the real names. Interesting, and, and it's a mixture of uh, late uh, Empire and Middle Ages. Uh, Barbarian visions, uh, pagan cults, uh, early Roman mythology. Oh, we should have uh, had you on for the uh, Less Dark This Fall episode. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then I got on the red box and from that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you did eventually make it to Dungeons and Dragons because it, it sounds like you you went down quite a road before you made it to Dungeons and Dragons. Oh yeah, which yeah, yeah. Is... It took me it took me it took me like a couple of years actually. D and D has been my fourth role playing game uh, after yeah, Catacumbas, the Black Eye, the Dark Eye, Tunnel and Trolls. Okay. And, and, and what made you stick with D and D in particular after going through all those other games that you were oh, playing? Oh. Um, Mostly the advantage was that uh, Dungeons & Dragons was available in um, toy shops. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a bunch of people had it. And I'll be, uh, I'm, I've, it's not my favorite rule system. It's not my, uh, it's not what I go to to prototype games very often, but it has, for my 10 years old self, uh, was great because mm-hmm. the specific type of fantasy presented in it was really flavorful. Mm. And I'm not saying that as 
someone that speaks in 2018 without context, I'm saying this from the perspective of someone that looked at it in 1992 and was like, wow, this is a thing. Remember um, the video game Dungeon Master had come out just like the year before. Uh, RPG on computers were not frequent. And so, I mean, World of Warcraft was not even imaginable back in the right, day. Right, right, right. I mean, we're still sort of almost at text-based games and sort of very much yeah, overhead exactly. views and stuff. So, Paolo, did you, were you aware of the Appendix N back in this era, or is this a concept that came to you kind of more when the OSR came around? Uh, I was aware. So other games have their own Appendix N, uh, and it's kind of bizarre uh, because uh, I, I really don't like fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are like two or three authors I really like. Uh, for example, I'm utterly in love with Neil Stevenson. Oh, yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, I love Edgar Allan Poe, mm-hmm. uh, Danzani, and Calvino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, funny when, when we asked you on the show, you're like, can I do a Lord Dunsany episode? And then I, I pointed out how far away that was, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ever make a Calvino episode, I'd love to be. In. There we go. Uh, <laughs> very cool well we definitely have a uh, you know if we survive that long we have all these other works that have been addressed as sort of peripheral to appendix n and so you yeah but about like the- i i i never read any of the works in the appendix n except like because they were in the appendix n except for dancing yeah. uh, okay i read earthsea because earthsea i think is in the appendix n of another book of my first role-playing game, so I read that. Yeah, well, Earthsea is the, not a part of the official Appendix N, but it is in the inspirational reading section of the um, basic box set. Yeah, Mulvey okay. Cook. Of the Mulvey yeah, Cook yeah. box set, yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I, don't think, I think I neglected to mention what we're actually reading this week. So we are reading Lee Brackett's The Halfling and Other Stories. Perfect. So, and right. which version of the book do you have, Hoy? I have the 1973 printing, so I think that's the first printing with the Car- uh, Carol Fole cover, which is kind Ooh. of weird and abstract. I and, have exactly uh, the same edition. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the Ace printing. So and what's I happening on every- the cover there? It looks like it might be the first story, although it could be something else. It looks like a circus caravan, sort of, some kind of weird wagon that's being pulled by sort of unicorny, horsey beasties. And there's <laughs> a... And the whole mis- Yeah, and there's a Lead mysterious... Yeah. Yeah. And there's a mysterious woman holding a sort of purple foxy creature standing there. It's a very sort of, um, I don't know, not extract is not the right word. Surrealist. It's a little bit surreal. Yeah. So it's a nice cover, you know, and normally I'm very OCD about this. I will only pick up the, the paperbacks that were printed in the, uh, in the pre appendix and era, but this time I cheated and I have the 1983 paperback. Uh, mm-hmm. It is the second edition printing from ACE paperback and it's got a cover by Mel Odom. And it has kind of this like 1940s noir kind of art deco looking woman on the front. And she's got one cat eye and one human eye. And I think they're kind of playing with that kind of half beast thing that's happening in the mm-hmm. story of the halfling. Um, so I think that's kind of what inspired that. Yeah, it does look like a lot like a Tamara Olympica painting, a little bit Olympica, however you pronounce her. So, that, so exactly right, as you were saying, art deco kind of look to that cover yeah yeah so before we move on to the library i'm going to quickly look at our word of the day polyglot 
polyglot. And polyglot means knowing or using several languages. And polyglot is found on page 34. And here it says, Hara repressed a shiver. He could see nothing but the crowded square, the polyglot life of Komar, the landless, the lawless, the unwanted and forgotten, the mingled offscouring of the inner worlds, mixed with the dark native human folk of Ganymede. So our nice. word is polyglot. Paolo, do you have another, does it, how's that word strike you? Do you have another word that struck, jumped out at you in your reading? Yeah, uh, there were like some weird ad- adjectives, I think, in the first uh, in the first story. And you had actually mentioned uh, prior to us starting the show that you were having a hard time getting into this book initially, and that the first two stories in particular were oh, not doing yeah. it for you. Um, the first story, uh, I think, I think I started on. So I read the, I start to read the first story, and it's like, oh, it's like I, I hit a wall, and I can't. Yeah. I just can't. Uh, I, at some point, I go like, oh, wow, this is literally the worst book I've ever read in my life. <laughs> I, I, I swear to God. I swear to God. I just couldn't. couldn't. And then I tried really hard, and I still couldn't. Well, I and love and only, appreciate the effort that you at least put in to this. No, no, no. Wait, wait. But then I read the first story, and it was a typical uh, boy meets weird girl. <laughs> he falls in love because she's pretty and weird. She falls in love because she loves her, despite her being weird. Everybody dies. And that's also basically the second story, too. Yeah, it's also the second story, too. (laughs) Um, However, uh, I actually managed to power through the first story just because I imagine it was... So the story is in first person, and what I was reading it, I imagine it was um, it was read by Bruce Willis. Okay, sure, that makes sense. So I if you read that. it in the voice of Bruce Willis, it feels like a, <laughs> a, a, a weirdo episode of Sin City. Mm-hmm. All right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely got that world weary tone. And, and yeah, Jade yeah. specifically mentions being kind of ugly, ugly but sort of attractive at the same time. Yeah, Jade being so the protagonist. I, I, I managed to to make it through, and then I go like, okay, this was this was actually quite interesting. Uh, the second one, uh, the dancing girl, follows pretty much the same plot line, um, and it was a bit more interesting, I think, because the characters were more developed. Yes, I would uh, agree. But I think that the 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 Citadel of the Lost Ages and all the core of the rainbows to me are uh, much stronger than the first two. I would yeah, say that ahead. the halfling is of the. I managed only to read four because basically I tried again to read the book like in the last week mm-hmm. and then other things. Sure. Uh, but I, I can't understand why the halfling is the titular. It is surprising. It is, it is, it is, and I, I would also agree. It's, it's, it was a hard way to start the collection. But uh, so Paolo, that means that you read four of the eight stories. Yes. Okay. Uh, not eight. No, they're not. Wait, wait. Eight. S- yes. Seven, the tr- truants is not listed. The truants is not listed in the table of contents. I was surprised too. I came, the very last story I thought I'd finished, and I said, "Oh, wait, there's one more story." So. Oh, the truants isn't listed in the table of contents in your book? Not, our, not in our. Oh, edition. that's hilarious. No. Well, there are eight stories, <laughs> but apparently only seven are listed in your table of contents. Uh, but yes. Oh yeah. So I've I, I did manage to read all eight of them, and so Paolo, what was your favorite of the four? And Hoy, what was your favorite of the eight? Sure. Uh, I think of the four, I really enjoyed. It's called all the star, all the color of the rainbow. Yeah, all the colors mm-hmm. of the rainbow. Yeah, all the colors of the rainbow, but it was 
it was quite telegraphed, uh, the development. Still, I think uh, for something written in 1973, it's uh, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, well, All the Colors of the Rainbow uh, was actually written in 1957. This collection was put together oh, in wow. 73. But these stories were, all of the stories in this in this collection were, were written in the 40s and 50s. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah, the credits are before. Uh, I was, I think I, I mean, at this point, nowadays, uh, it's uh, this all like reversal uh, of the point of view is uh, quite, as quite a history mm-hmm. of big use. But I guess uh, in, in the 50s, it must have been less used. Absolutely. As device. And for those who are listening to this episode who've not read All the Colors of the Rainbow, what's really cool about this particular story is essentially what's happening here is humankind exists throughout all the stars and on all the planets. And we now, our skin colors are all the colors of the rainbow. There are green people and blue people and white people and black people and yellow people and everything. And at this point, these two green people come to a planet of just white folk and they're planning to bring this planet in and actually if i recall it's just earth right right that's my take on it is that they're they are traveling to contemporary earth and that they are essentially the same as us they may be a little bit more advanced and have uh you know obviously technology and maybe even some some level of um empathy that we don't have and full-on like the word is used against them and it's interesting too because i feel like not i feel like i know that the Appendix N has in the past few years been co-opted by a lot of like white supremacy groups and a lot of kind of the alt-right are really into the Appendix N right now because they feel like the Appendix N is an era back when they when fantasy fiction wasn't message fiction, quote unquote. But this is obviously an allegory for racism and oh, yeah, not definitely. a thinly veiled one at all. It's very obviously like no, they're no. exploring how racist Americans are and how horribly we treat people who don't look like us when we don't have education and empathy. Uh, and this is straight out of the pages of the Appendix N. I actually felt the at some point the, the characters go get almost like mobbed. Um, oh yeah, they get beaten. Like they're like yeah, yeah. Actually, they get assaulted by a mob. Uh, and while while a judge and the sheriff are there, and they they do nothing. Yeah, because first they're denied service. They they won't let them stay at the inn. They won't give them any gas. And then they finally drive them out of town. But even when they drive them out of town, that's apparently not enough. So they drive them off the road and beat the crap out of them. Um, and it's cool because it's it's not only an allegory wow. for racism. It's also <clears throat> like race horror. The way that like Get Out is race horror. And it's also revenge fantasy too, which I always love revenge fantasy fiction, like Kill Bill style right. stuff, because they full on go back and they destroy that fucking town, which makes me really happy. Right. Uh, actually, right. I, I found super cool that the destruction of the town happens. Yes, right. uh, in the well, prologue. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the structure of it, and actually, a couple of interesting things. Sorry, I don't mean to jump on. As you said, the the the, just, the ending is actually right there in the beginning, I and mean, we just don't know how we're going to get to that point. What? it's literally a biblical flood destroying this town mm-hmm. at the beginning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they, they mentioned that they used um, micro cedars, which are basically right. terraformers yeah. for yeah. rain. Uh, so I was like, uh, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, okay, this is weird. So we are clearly on earth, but it's being terraformed. What happened to ground falls? It's flooded already, but then <laughs> they go there and it's not flooded. And I, I think it's, it's, it's a small gem. It's really right. a small gem. Yeah. I right. I, 
I think this story is particularly strong because it actually, as you're saying, it's, it's playing with points of view and you actually feel the tension and the fear on the part of this alien who's driving there and his, his mate. Let's actually say this. At the end, his mate does get raped. She gets raped at the end. And not just assaulted and beaten. You're right, right? That's, you're right. That's I mean, I don't it. know if it's actually spelled out, but it's quite clear that... But she, Oh, no, 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 yeah, yeah. It's sure. quite clear, because they're asking, oh, do these, do these green people lay eggs? No, they don't lay eggs, you know, right? So, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. also they were yeah. saying we're married, and like, were you married... Were you were you married by the Christian God on our planet? Right. Then we don't recognize right. your marriage, and we're going to take your woman. Right. right. Yeah, um, it's just like that was that was truly terrible. Uh, right. Yeah, it was horrific. It is really effective horror writing, kind of mixed right. in with sci-fi. Right, and it's quite telling that it was written at the very beginning of sort of the modern civil rights movement, 1957. That would have been around the time of you know the uh, bus protests in, um, you know, in the South and, you know. Oh, in, really? Wow. Mar- that's, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. I, I don't know much of uh, yeah. modern, sorry, contemporary uh, American history. Mm-hmm. So, right. so I, right around I that no time. That actually makes it even more poignant. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it should be a great case to bring up uh, for refuting the whole appendix set as reactionary. Absolutely. So, Hoy, of the eight stories, which one was your favorite? Um, I thought this one was quite strong, but um, I think I might lean towards the uh, Citadel of um, Lost Ages. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's also pretty good. It's very good, um, yeah. Uh, I, I, I very liked how the Citadel changes tone as they go through different parts of the story, as in the narrative structure is much different in the first part, uh, and then as they go through the city, as to travel out and then in the Citadel. Um, mm-hmm. Also, the characters are, they're not much developed, but for example, the head of the Desert Raiders uh, is not much developed, but the little that is developed, you can, I, I could appreciate him as a well-rounded character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And certainly the brother, Malik, is is um, is quite interesting character. He's very conflicted. The, yeah. the half, the half new me, half human. So the new me in this story, the the, the protagonist uh, wakes up in the citadel with no past memories, and he's being held by a race of almost lion-like men known as the new me. And he's rescued by uh, again a mysterious girl who is half new me, and her brother who's also half new me. And then they try to escape to the dark side of the world. And we, we we later find out we think it's an alien world, but then we later find out that we're actually on Earth, and Earth has stopped rotating, and so there's a sun side, and then. There's a dark side, which is where New York used to be. And supposedly there's a citadel, which contains all the knowledge of humanity that they're going to mm-hmm. look for. Buried in the Palisades. Um, buried in the Palisades. And um, actually, Jeff, why don't you tell us your favorite story? And then I want to say some things about how these two me seem to link up all these stories. In maybe not in a uh, universe kind of way, but into some of the thematic sense. Oh, sure. Go on. Um, right before I do yeah. that, though, on Citadel of Lost Ages, I also just wanted to say that like reading this reminded me so much of Hyro's journey. Uh, the the, mm-hmm. the tone of it, the pacing of it, kind of what's happening within it. It, it was very Hyro's journey. And I'm wondering if Sterling Lanier had read this story or if they're just drawing upon several of the same inspirations and sources and they were kind of, I don't know, developed um, parallelly. <laughs> I'm very right. well-spoken today. <laughs> right. But yes, my, my favorite story from the collection was one that you didn't get to, Paolo. It's in the second half but it's Enchantress of Venus. And part of the reason I love this story so much is I've, I, I have read a little bit of Lee Brackett before, 
And this is the only story in the collection that's one of the Eric John Stark stories. And I've read some of the other Eric John Stark stories. And I love Eric John Stark. He's really fun. And this is a great little story. And by little, actually, it's it's the longest one in the collection. It's it's like like 60 pages or something. Uh, so it's a pretty hefty, it's a pretty hefty length short story. But there's so much creativity in there. You know, when they go to the Red Sea and the sea that's on the planet of Mars, it's it's a it's a sea of gas. On Venus. On Venus, I'm sorry, yes, they're right. Yeah, yeah. They're on yeah. Venus, not Mars. Yeah. Uh, but the sea that's on Venus, it's made completely of this red gas. And when you fall into it, it's as though you're falling through water. So you can swim through it, but you can also breathe it just fine. It preserves everything that goes in there. So this entire sea had like rushed over this this like huge city at one point, which is now still completely intact underneath this like sea of this strange red gas. And I don't know, I really enjoyed the stories. I love Eric John Stark. And I also think that it's cool how Lee Brackett was also playing with race with Eric John Stark too, because he's a black skinned protagonist. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, he's not a black skinned person in that he's, you know, a black person or like an African American or somebody from Africa. He's, he's black skinned because he's from Mercury. And I know that in other stories, he's just, he's described as having kind of um, Caucasian like features, but then just like black skin. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating to me about the Eric John Stark character, even outside of the fiction is that when the artists who were putting out the books at the time, they always drew him as this like Caucasian hero, this like blonde hair, blue eyed man, even though he's very, it's, it's explained that he's got black skin in the stories, but that was never um, represented that way in the artwork. Uh, But I think it's cool that she was exploring race stuff there too. Cause also in this kind of town where they don't get people from the outside in all the colors of the rainbow, they actually use the N word in it. In this one, they don't, but they often refer to him being called a quote unquote short, ugly word, which I'm wondering if she means the same thing or if she's thinking of something else. Uh, quite possible. I mean, it, it's, it's Enchantress of Venus is 1949, 1950. And so it's, it's maybe a little bit early to be having that discussion in sort of the very literal way that yeah. all the colors of the rainbow does, but only yeah. eight years later, as we say, with the modern civil rights movement starting up, that it, you know the N word becomes you know first and foremost in people's consciousness, uh, you know, as a bad term, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Right. And I also loved uh, all the prophecy in it, and yeah. I thought that Trion was a really cool character because he's somebody who is disfigured and who is um, dif- disfigured and disformed and, and deformed from birth, but he manages to you know. He finds that secret that makes his body perfect, although it's ultimately going to destroy him. It also makes his body perfect long enough for him to kind of like fight this war and kind of end the evil of his like incestuous siblings. Yeah, I mean, I think that is um, most memorable in terms of uh, imagery. Um, And I definitely recommend that, uh, Paolo, if you are powering through, that you definitely. Oh, no, no. Like the the powering through part was just for the first 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 one, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The second one, if. The problem is that the first, the second, and the third, the beginning is not much different. Like the third one starts a bit more on Eric, but there is still this weird, not really human woman, and I just like felt I don't know. Uh, I was I was really let down, but yeah. as I read through 
both The Dancing Girl and The Citadel, uh, I was actually much engaged, and I think I'll finish it in the next days. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I, as I said, I think the Alfling should not have been the first novel. I agree, and I, I, I agree. The first two are kind of a slog, and I also thought the last the last story, the Truants, I just thought it was kind of dumb. It's it's a little bit of a sort of a just a Twilight Zone like oh here's the twist yeah uh, you know yeah um, but but well I will say even though on the weakest stories I think I see some through lines with what Lee Brackett is doing I think that she's incredibly effective at describing and creating mood in her environments whether oh, or not yeah. the halfling is a good uh, narrative that the, the idea you can you can sense yourself in that carnival. In, in that circus, right? You could sense walking through there and smelling the animals and, you know, hearing the, 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 the hurdy gurdy and stuff like that and seeing the lights flashing on the beach. Um, Dancing girl of Ganymede. Um, I think the heat and this town that's on this cliff and then the, the jungle below. And actually I think the dancing girl of Ganymede to me seems like it might very much be an influence on the film of Blade Runner. Mm. Oh, right? Cause if, these androids yeah. and, and they're superior and they just want to be able to survive and reproduce and travel out to the stars. I would also say because Lee Brackett, for those who are listening, who don't know this, she was also the co-author of star Wars, the empire strikes back the second star Wars film. And I definitely, you're talking about these different planets that like have these like very, very kind of specific feelings they evoke. That also felt very star Wars to me. So I also, I also think it's really cool that she ended up being one of the, one of the, one of the screenplay writers of empire strikes back as well. Mm-hmm. And she had been a very much a long-term, a long-time screenwriter. She had written as, um, as Paolo, you were mentioning, she wrote the screenplay for, uh, the big sleep, right? Yeah, um, which I totally love. It's right. one of those gems of a movie. Yeah. And, and so linking to that, you'll see in a lot of the stories, there are two women, one who is sort of, a sympathetic but possibly weaker figure and then a more compelling but possibly sort of evil or destructive female figure uh, in a lot oh, of the stories. You're right. Right? Not every single story, but a lot of the stories, right? Yeah. It's a good observation. Yeah. So, um, and certainly in The Halfling, there's only the, the well, actually, there's also the dancers killed, but Laura Darrow is that, the, the, the halfling, the titular halfling, is that, evil figure, but she has that sort of good girl side in that she falls in love with Jade a little bit and, and wants to spare him, but she is yeah. that evil character. And also in the dancing girl of Ganymede, one of the androids is very sympathetic. Obviously the girl who rescues him in uh, the, the unnamed protagonist in Citadel of Lost Ages. Um, so there's usually a duality, especially in the Stark stories. Um, yeah. Usually- Cause with Enchantress of Venus, we, we definitely have, there's like the sister Vara. Yeah who is definitely one of the evil ones, but then there's the, uh, but then there's Zareth, who's the daughter of Malthor. And she is not only sympathetic, she dies so that he can live at the end. She sacrifices herself. Mm-hmm. And um, in the, and again, I think that Lee Brackett was very versed in film noir. And in a sense, although it's usually the protagonist in her stories is usually male. They're somewhat more passive than you would expect them to be. In a and more like a film noir protagonist, somewhat more. So they're they are sort of buffeted by the fate in their environment rather than just planting their flag on a hill like say Conan might do, right? Eric oh, John Stark is just just as powerful as Conan, or the protagonist of uh, Citadel of Lost Ages is is brave and strong and powerful, but he's also you know driven by fate and, and sort of responsibility to the other characters around him. Yeah, also like in uh, the Citadel of the Lost Ages, the protagonist. Uh 
up until the point where the leave the city does pretty much not much. Right. Just murders a guy in the temple. Yeah. And that's it. That's true. Um, the uh, what's it? What's her name? Malik well, Arika. Arika. Yeah, Arika. Arika is much more. I mean, she's she's the protagonist of the first part of the story. Just the narrator is momentarily someone else. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know what I mean? It's just she goes there, uh, makes him recover part of his sanity, brings him to salvation, leads him out of the city, yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, Stark is the same way, even though there's so many Stark stories. He sort of is there. He walks into a situation. He sort of absorbs the situation. People come to him and reveal what's going on. And then he's sort of like this then becomes a force of destiny. And that seems to happen in the, the three Stark, uh, Stark short stories that I've read so far. Um, I don't know about the later novels, but that's, yeah. that's, that seems to be the feeling I get with him. One thing that I really enjoy about Lee Brackett and a lot of these stories is that she really clearly like wears her influences on her sleeve. And as you're talking about her film noir stuff, definitely her hopping from planet to planet um, there definitely is a big film noir vibe there, but I also like how much horror there is here as well, mm-hmm. because we already discussed the horror and all the colors of the rainbow, but also the horror in the Lake of the Gone Forever, which is uh, the second to last story. I also thought was really effective. And it seemed to me that she was very inspired by At the Mountains of Madness in this, because here it is. Here's this like ancient city in this kind of like frozen wasteland that he's trying to get to. And it, it very much, although it's populated and there are, there, are, there are people there who very much are against him getting what he wants here, it still very much feels at the Mountains of Madness. And one of the things that I thought was fun is at one point on page 255, she, makes a, she, she writes something that I think has to be kind of a wink and a nod to her Lovecraft influences. She says, her, his father's notes, his father's dying cry his own waking visions and fearful wanderings beyond the wall of sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh, Just wow. the phrase beyond the wall of sleep <laughs> is the name of an HP Lovecraft story. So I, I feel like she's, she's very winky with her references, which I kind of really dig. Right. And obviously this, the burrows, you know, here's a, here's an outlander oh, yeah. come to the planet. Um, yeah. Yeah. She was a huge burrows fan. That, right. that I know that that's, that's well documented. Right. Um, uh, I want to, I felt, I, I felt a lot of um, Princess of Mars in the Citadel. Mm-hmm. Just more like a mood than a plot line or anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. There is this all like uh, dying planet uh, and trying to get to this place to do stuff. I think going through the desert was possibly... Yeah, now that you bring back like Star Wars, uh, I can definitely say it as... Uh, very atmospheric the way it was built up. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, I, that's her, her strength is atmosphere, I think, or one of her strengths. Yeah, go on. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, Paolo. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just saying that, like, I have like uh, sometimes a hard time uh, feeling the way, sort feeling in the places in described in narrative books, but the Citadel really did the job for me. Also, um, the color. And also, even like the the Hobbit. In the Hobbit, there is just a part where uh, you just list a bunch of attractions and where they're from and which way. But did weird. you see the Hobbit? The halfling. The halfling. The halfling. Sorry. <laughs> 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 we don't want to get the Tolkien estate suing us. Uh, no, well, swingly bracket. 
Uh, <laughs> and um, it, it brings I, up I, like, uh, oh, there is this uh, strange thing from this planet and this other thing from this other uh, Jovian moon. And, and it feels like very much like a carnival, as you said before. Jorge. Yeah. Can I also point out something, Jeff, that you made me think of when you were talking about uh, Lake of God Forever that I think recurs in different forms in her stories, um, which is a sense of loss and ancientness. Even though a lot of these fe- stories theoretically take place in our future, mm-hmm. um, we see in Citadel of Lost Ages, there's that tomb with all the Numi kings. They're perfectly preserved in the glass tubes. Yeah. Right? We see the tomb in... Uh, under the under the temple with the reptilian beings in the Enchantress of Venus, right? That's and obviously true. the lake the lake of gone forever is also the graveyard for those beings on the planet of Iskar. Which is also right? very Dungeons and Dragons, because in Dungeons right. and Dragons you're walking around, you're exploring these ruins, and it's supposedly kind of a medieval a parallel to medieval European whatever, but also somehow we have these like you know, ancient tombs that sometimes, especially if you're going to the really old school D and D modules might even have like super advanced technology in some way down there. Um, so well, I definitely think that ties nicely into D and D, but I, I think this is a great segue into the head of the gaming part of this conversation. So Paolo, I'm curious on the appendix N, Gary Gygax lists Lee bracket, but he doesn't recommend anything, anything specific to read. He just kind of lists her as an author to check out. Having read this, do you have any theories as to why her work was specifically cited as something that's worth reading? Yes. Uh, for me, it's part of uh, one of the ways I frame Dungeons and Dragons. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is, in a way, post-apocalyptic. Uh, sorry, post-apocalyptic. Yes. So there are these massive ruins of lost civilizations. Mm-hmm. And they're there, they're full of wonders, they're full of gold, and they're there for taking, but maybe you die because unnamed monstrosities. And this is not the kind of post-apocalyptic that goes now, the trends nowadays, but it's a kind of post-apocalyptic that... Uh, I dare to say, uh, was seen in the Middle Ages and in the the Renaissance for the Roman Empire. Yeah. And the Greeks had it for the Egyptians. So they're looking back to cultures which have a millennial history, did incredible things, uh, completely unfathomable uh, for the... for the looker mm-hmm. and and they're lost how are they gone how are they gone if they were so great mm-hmm. to me to me the citadel uh in a way uh feels almost like uh ozymandian you know the mm-hmm. the statue of ozymandias that is there in the desert and you can only see the foot because the rest of the statue is destroyed mm-hmm. and the foot is enormous where is the rest gone what happened mm-hmm. to the king. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating. Um, actually, Jeff and I are from the States. It's a young country. <laughs> this sense of accessing or being constantly surrounded by ancientness, I mean, how does that, that, that must be, have a lot of resonance to you, Paolo, growing up in Italy? Uh, yes. Uh, 
my dad's office when I was a little kid was in uh, two roads away from Milan's Cathedral. And it's a small arcade. Uh, Milan City Center is full of small arcades. They're public. Uh, they're just covered walkways um, with shops and whatnot. And in the same square, there is like a brutalist uh, skywalk. So basically there is uh, a gallery under a building and you can just walk under the building. And as you, from the street, if you look through this like columnade, you can see a Renaissance church, uh, a medieval structure and also the remains of the terme of when Milan was a city of the empire. And this is like in one city square. Yeah, that's amazing. That's where I grew up. And so I can see how these stories would have, especially Citadel of Lost Ages, I can see how that would have a a real connection to you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I I actually like, I I really enjoy the kind of like looting archaeologist part of Dungeons and Dragons. Albeit I'm not a great fan of this all post-apocalyptic style. I like to have my games where civilization and progress is in full swing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Tonic Codex, uh, there are no ruins because the schools of magic are still around. So depending on where you uh, set it in the the storyline, even all the schools might still be teaching. Mm. So it's... It's it's definitely a different uh, outlook on what you're taking out of the game, rather than a recovery is a discovery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but conversely, you publish Into the Odd, which is about recovering lost technologies, right? Oh that's, yeah, that's yeah. Of, but that's, that's, that's also that. a, a brilliant metaphor for the north of England. Uh, Chris is uh, from the north, from mm-hmm. the Manchester area. And that game speaks a lot about uh, lost industrial, like a lost industrial past. Uh, Imagine like a rust belt, but uh, uh, with, yeah, it's pretty much uh, if they made a a fantasy, a weird fantasy sci-fi post-apocalyptic game about the rust belt. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So Paolo, if you were going to be running a game kind of based on or inspired by the work of Lee Brackett where it's sword and planet and you're hopping from planet to planet. But once you're actually on the planet, there's kind of this timeless nature to it where it doesn't necessarily feel like it's the far future. It kind of feels like it's now and the past and the future all at the same time. What rule system would you want to use to run a game like this? Oh, uh, it's, it really depends on, like, my first thought was, yeah, I'm just going to run OD&D. Okay. J- just straight uh, up white box the, D&D for this kind of stuff. Straight up white box or whatever else yeah. uh, you find more comfortable, like, depending on what you find most most comfortable. But I would say uh, a rule light Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. I, I would run it with Mageblade nowadays mm-hmm. because... Which is a great system, by the way. I, oh, thank you. Uh, I am writing it to uh, replace... No, I'm writing it as a replacement for OSR D&D because like, Dungeons & Dragons, for me, as a problem that you have to grow in levels in order to get to a point where the game doesn't tell you anymore that you suck. Yeah, I, I, I can see so that. So in Mage Blade, the character starts 
uh, as competent. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that's a fit for every game. Because some other games, you might say, no, 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 you you suck. You start that you suck. And if you survive for long enough, you don't suck anymore. Or maybe you just play a game where you just always suck. (laughs) And and you're always, the the threat of death is always there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. That's that's, uh, a request. Sure. But that's that's not Lee Brackett. Because in these stories, you don't have characters who are dying left and right who are at any moment, I mean, I guess like in the shadow story, a lot of people died, but but still for the most part, these characters aren't disposable. You know, each, each of these protagonists really are kind of designed to survive Confident. because yeah. they're heroic. They're heroic, they're not super heroic though. I mean, Stark uh, admits fear, right? And, and the protagonist of uh, Citadel of Lost Ages has to duck and hide from the arrows that are raining down from above. He's not, he, he can't just walk through them or charge through them, you know, so that they are, are more competent than the run of the mill and maybe even more than 99% of I was going to say, because I'm, 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 yeah. I, I always love the descriptions of these protagonists, but um, yeah. at one point, one of the characters sees Stark and he says, um, he says, I have never seen such skin. He said admiringly, nor such great muscles. <laughs> oh, hi. How are you doing? <laughs> right. Hello, Eric John Stark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Actually, Enchantress yeah. of Venus does. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, even Green in the first, uh, in the first story uh, is clearly scared yeah. because mm-hmm. in his carnival, like a bunch of people are dying. And for most of the story, he has no idea what's. Who's killing yeah. everybody? And also, there is, uh, I think, a, a stampede in the the dancing girl of Ganymede. Mm-hmm. Ganymede. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, uh, yeah, uh, they're not the typical fearless macho right. protagonist. Yeah. I mean, they right. might be a bit macho, but they're not there as a. It doesn't feel like a, a wish fulfillment male character. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, there's definitely they're not. Um, yeah, yeah, even Stark. Stark is is physically quite quite exceptional, but you don't get the sense that he's uh, invincible. And um, actually, going back to the halfling for a second, I also want to say that the actual most powerful character is the villain, Laura. Oh yeah, who's actually the, the petite dancer. And actually, the first thing that popped out to my mind is that she's actually an almost perfect representation of the D and D assassin class. Mm. That's a good point, right? Yeah, she disguise. She can, you know, essentially backstab, hide in shadows. You know, do all sorts of very ninja like things. Um, Yeah, because she's half, you know, cat person. Yeah, but that's a good uh, point. You know, I I just looking at all the the class abilities. Said, oh, D and D assassin. You know, not I'm not saying that that was where he pulled it from. Sure, but it it definitely works. So if if you're gonna do, I guess I guess assassin's not O D and D. But if you wanted to kind of play yeah. this stuff with AD&D or something, the assassin would make a lot of sense in that case. One thing that I was mm-hmm. thinking about is in almost all of these stories, romance is a part of the story. And when when you play, when I play OSR games or even contemporary Dungeons & Dragons, fantasy RPG stuff, romance usually isn't part of the story and isn't something that's happening at the table. And I'm curious, what do you guys think? Is there room for romance in OSR games or fantasy RPGs? Because they, they exist a lot in uh, the Appendix N. Oh, yeah. For me, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a, mix, of a mixed bag. Like, I never really 
play the make out part or anything <laughs> like that. But there might be uh, an initial bit of seduction, and if that goes well, they go off camera doing things. Mm-hmm. And I have like my player characters, um, sorry, play characters, characters of my players, mm-hmm. uh, like starting families and having kids and so on. Uh, however, there is the risk of of using family for one of the most frequent abused yet horribly realistic tropes in uh, in fiction, yeah. which is going after the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like a waste not to, in a way. Right, right. Yeah. It seems that, like, that, instant, that instantly ups the stakes, right? So Yeah, it instantly ups the stakes, and it's also kind of cheap in a way, because yeah. like, oh, yeah, of course, they, they uh, yeah, I raided the... Uh, the, le- the sorry the the temple of the dark god and therefore the the cult of the dark god now completely killed my family as a right. revenge yeah where it seems like most D characters they have no they have no wife or husband or children or parents or <laughs> they're they're always these like dark loners with no past or maybe their maybe their whole village was burned down by orcs or something as part of their like overly written backstory. Uh, but oftentimes it seems like people don't want to write characters that have very kind of real human ties, and probably precisely for that reason. Right. Well, well also there is the whole thing about how uh, t- we call it we call them murder hobos. Mm-hmm. But the point is that if you're a transient adventurer with no with no community where you belong to and where you live, it's also hard to make the kind of durable relationships that lead to a family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless you sleep around a lot. Sure. I also think it's the nature of how the game is played too, because the Appendix N, although you do have adventuring parties that form in the Appendix N, most of the time you're following a protagonist. And I feel like if the game was one game master and one player, then I feel like the romance portion of it might be able to fit more into the game more easily. But that almost feels like splitting the party with a, with a, with a, with with the party play. Cause like you're then focusing too much on one person's thing and like, you're not getting, and the whole group isn't getting to have fun with this. Yeah. I hate to be that person that says that you have to have a rule for everything. And I think that, amongst the three of us, we all sort of gravitate to sorts of rules light systems. But I think that, you know, if you want to privilege that kind of role-playing, then you almost have to create a structure that will allow for it. And that's, for example, like, like Pendragon, where you, you actually create a dynasty, right. Or in, um, which was uh, the Arthurian Mm role-playing game. Um, you know, in GURPS, you can get, or Hero System, you can buy dependents. So then the dependents can then be, you know, under a certain role, your family, your best friend might get involved in the adventure in some meaningful way. Whereas I think, or, you know, some of the more modern story games, privileged relationships. Whereas I think OD&D, uh, we've talked about this before in some of the other podcasts, the trappings are medieval, but the essential feeling to me is a lot more like a Western film, like, you know, a spaghetti Western or a cowboy yeah. film. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, a person who just goes out to a frontier with no roots, no connections, and, and is going to strike out and earn their earn their glory and their fame. You know? Sure. Oh yeah, totally. So, and we'll we'll genocide all the yeah. orcs we need to to get to that treasure. Exactly. You know, like I said, I, I don't know that I don't say that it can't be done, but if you want to sort of foreground those kind of interactions, 
I think there's easier ways to do it than straight OD&D or even AD. I, I am intrigued yeah, by I, the idea of Pendragon in space. I've never played Pendragon. It's never particularly <laughs> appealed to me, but framed from the perspective of kind of playing a sword and planet Pendragon, that intrigues me. That is something I would, sure, I would, like, be, I would want to sign up for. And, and, you know, once again, if we're going to talk about Lee Brackett and Empire Strikes Back, suddenly we're talking about a story about families, right? Families and dynasties and relationships in a family, even though it's all pure yeah, action. Yeah, you're right. Right? So, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so, yeah, you know, I don't know. But that's just, just something to think about. Also, one of the things that keeps coming up with, with the Lee Brackett stories is so many of these stories take place on Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Mercury, all within our own galaxy. But obviously, we know enough about science now that like these planets are not habitable unless they did major terraforming or something. Um, but in general, how do you guys feel about the aesthetic of role-playing within our own galaxy, hopping from hopping in a, in a ship that takes you to Jupiter? Well, first of all, it's not true that Jupiter is not inhabitable. There are colonies there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paolo. And there are, there are cats on Ganymede, on Ganymede <laughs> like totally, totally jet black skinned people. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. Right. <laughs> I appreciate that clarification. This is my official opinion on the box. <laughs> and I'm sure there are there are there are many goats on all those planets, right? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially on the most on the right. on the on the rocky planets, right, right. full of goats. Yeah, Jeff, stop spreading disinformation, man. Don't, don't tell people that they can't live on Venus. <laughs> but yeah, how do you guys feel about this, the aesthetics of using our own solar system in gaming? Oh, I think it's great. Good. I like it for scale because um, you know, otherwise you have to have you have to hand wave people traveling like thirty light years, thirty light years to find a you know a thematically mm-hmm. interesting planet. You know, whereas Mars and Venus already have sort of an imagery like Mars, we tend to think of as like a desert It's hot desert and Venus is lush jungle. I mean, this is through Burroughs and all the other Pulp Fiction of the era. And so she was yeah. playing off of that. Right. That's, that's my feeling. I, I, I think I, yeah, totally. Um, it, it's, they're not that far. Yeah. Of course they're incredibly far. I mean, even on a rocket ship to Mars, it's going to take like one year to get there or something ridiculous nowadays, maybe, or, but, uh, they are within our grasp, mm-hmm. while anything out of the solar system, actually anything out of the inner solar system is kind of like unreachable. Yeah, know? I like that. Right. So we're, we're starting to run a bit at a time. I'm curious, do any of you guys kind of have any last little ideas or something that you got from the story that you would like to use in your games? I, I, will, I will lead off because I actually I do have one. In the first story, in The Halfling, one of the things that they use to control the cat people is coffee. (laughs) They are complete drug addicts for coffee and they will do anything for coffee. And one of the things that I think that could be really fun in kind of your more kind of traditional OSR game is to maybe incorporate that some way. Maybe, maybe like you discover that uh, dragons go crazy for tobacco or something like you, you find Something that's kind of normal <laughs> within the human world, but it has a very particular c- control or draw um, with some other subset that you can kind of use in some kind of advantageous way in your game. I think that might be a fun thing to incorporate into into my own gaming. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that 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 that's great. Uh, for me, the thing is that, as I said, like of certain planet stuff, I only read. Uh, 
Princess of Mars, uh, in addition to this. But I totally see that there should be uh, a bunch of different player playable races mm. from <clears throat> like the. I I think it's a missed opportunity not to have a certain planet setting with a bunch of weird races, and some of these weird races might be traditional weird races from D&D. For example, like if you take the playable race of the Arakokra for from Second yeah. Edition, mm-hmm. uh, they could become uh, what was the the something something. There was like a winged creature in one of the stories. Right, I think in um, it was Enchant. Uh, no, it wasn't Enchantress. It was uh, which one of the stories it was Dancing Girl of Ganymede. I think there were yes. some winged creatures in it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, now, for you, would right. you have? Would all of these different playable races all have different mechanical effects, or would it be primarily flavor? I would say that unless there is something in the game that make different races different, they all end up being the same. So they it. It's, it becomes completely lost and forgotten to the players that one plays an elf, unless the elf is visibly different. Uh-huh. So maybe if there are if there are no consequences of someone playing a, an elf or a cat girl from Ganymede, uh, what, what's what's the point of them playing an elf? But for example, if you play a, a dwarf and you go in a place where like people don't like yeah. dwarves. Yeah, I'm not uh, insinuating that it shouldn't have in-story differences. I'm talking about mechanics. Uh, do you feel like... I would give them different you would. mechanics okay. as well. I, I totally would. Uh, right. Mostly because, to me, uh, the way race and class are combined... I, I normally play only human campaigns. Like, I almost never have uh, non-humans in my, in my campaigns. Uh, however... Uh, if when I do, they are just mechanically mm-hmm. different, or else why? Uh, if I were not to give them different mechanics, I would just give them instead of a different race, a different yeah. culture, which to me is much stronger. That's mm-hmm. fair. Or yeah, nationality or whatever. Awesome. Political Thank you, Paolo. And how about you, Hoy? Do you have do you have a last a last minute addition you would like to throw out there for us? I think I would continue to hit on the uh, a ability for her to sort of create a, a visual or a sense of image in place with very few words, you know, like the weird red misty sea in Enchantress of Venus, uh, those kind of things like that. So find a way to sort of create a, a mind picture with, elegantly, you know, as a judge or a GM. Um, I think it's, it's pretty important. A lot of times we just say, oh, you're in a 10 foot by 10 foot square room or something like that without getting that sort of sense yeah. of atmosphere that she's so effective at. Um, and in particular, she talks about sound, I think, a lot more than... And one of my favorite sentences is in The Enchantress of Venus, when he first goes into that vault, which is where the, um, you know, the evil family is. And he goes, a voice spoke, slow, harsh, sexless. It ran through thinly through the vault. Thin, but a steel blade is thin, too. It speaks inexorably, and its word is final. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, yeah, those kind of things like that. Just that little thing to, to up the tension and the horror and what have you, I think, I think is, is something that... Uh, we can take from the bracket, you know. Well said. Well, Paolo, thank you so much for for joining us. I know we ask a lot of our guests. This isn't a normal podcast where you just come on and chat. We actually make you read something first. So thank you so much for. <laughs> oh, it's, it's been great. Uh, yeah. Also, I'm I'm so happy that I I started on a very bad foot, but then I discovered that it was much better than I had realized. 
Yeah, and one of the things that Hoy and I have discovered is that even when the stuff we're reading aren't isn't particularly good, they still usually turn into really fun conversations. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely. Yeah. Paolo, is there anything also that you want to tell us about any uh, new projects that you're working on or anything that, that's about to be released that uh, you think people should know about or where they can find you? I am, I'm not working on anything new officially. Well, I am, but not officially. <laughs> but I'm just focusing on putting out um, books that are already written by my authors. So I'm uh, working on Macchiato Monsters at the moment. I'm working on uh, Mandan Gouge, which is a mega dungeon setting by Roger of uh, Rolls, Rules, and Rolls. And I'm working on this, a supplement for Into the Odd that nice. should come up, uh, come out before December and others. So uh, your, your uh, company's Lost Pages and uh, your blog is Showcamp, uh, so- like in TSO? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like that guy. Okay. Lost Caverns of Silkanth. Uh, is it WordPress or Blogspot? Uh, it's WordPress. WordPress.com. So uh, look for Paolo or look for Lost Pages. And uh, his, his work is uh, also available at your all, all your other usual re, uh, places, such as uh, One Bookshelf. Okay. Anything else, Jeff? That's it. So our next two episodes will be uh, episode 32 is going to be Philip Jose Farmer's The Gates of Creation. And episode 33 will be Paul Anderson's The High Crusade. Right. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, please uh, rate us on iTunes. It helps people find us. If you want to email us, you can email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or tweet at us at appendix underscore n. Uh, anything else? That's it. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed!